So welcome to another episode of the BRFCS podcast and in this special edition we're talking to Tom Schofield who you might also know from the 1875 podcast he's guested on here before as well. But Tom um, has reached a key milestone in his life and he's just left university and about to start a new job but I want to talk about the last thing he did before he left university. But first of all Tom, how are you this morning? Yeah, I'm brilliant. A bit slow in the transfer market, isn't it? So it could be a little bit better, but yeah, personally, well, I'm brilliant. We'll, we'll not talk about activity in the transfer market. We'll keep, we'll keep this nice and timeless, <laughs> I think. And we'll hope that by the yeah, if people are listening to this in September, they're talking about the fantastic uh, signings that we made. So you left university this summer, but uh, yeah. before you left, you to write a, a sort of dissertation, I guess it is, and you were able to choose the subject. So tell the listeners what it was that you did and what you wrote about. Well, basically, I suppose you could call it a, a modern history of Blackburn, I suppose. Then he was just looking at, essentially, rovers from three different periods. So I looked at the, basically, full members' cup winning team up until just before Kane Dalgleish became manager. And then I looked at, obviously, the Premier League winning side. And then I sort of jumped ahead to, basically, modern day, looking at, I suppose, the, the era of Venkis, I called it. Yeah. And how they have took over and we've had... I'd say some misfortunes, but you know, there's been some some relatively good moments as well throughout it. So I wanted to give a, a fair appraisal, I think, of that area as well. So how do you, how come you were able to to choose your subject? I'm just basically horrendously jealous that I, well, you know, my, <laughs> my final exams at university were about banking law and sort of like accountancy and things like that, and you get to do something as interesting as this. Were, were there any constraints placed on you? What could what could you choose? So they, they, they said it was a major project. You could do um, in different formats. So you could do TV, radio, print, or digital. And obviously I chose digital because that's probably where I'm, I'm most comfortable. And essentially we had to pick an overarching subject. Yeah. So long as we could get three sub-subjects. Ah, I see. Um, and then one of them had to be current affairs. Yeah. Um, so that was my Venki's piece. Yeah. Um, and the other ones could be so basically a series of features. So I put it to my um, lecturer, Martin Hamer, and he just said, yeah, there's a couple of tweaks. Originally, I wanted to look at it a bit more broadly. Um, so I wanted to focus a bit on the Worthington Cup success as well. Yeah. So I've put that in with the Premier League bit, because I suppose you could say that was a period of success. But then I thought we were relegated in that time as well. So it'd be a bit silly to, to jump over that and act like it was just a period where we were really good, because obviously that wasn't the case. So yeah, I focused it a little bit by just focusing on the Premier League and looking at the full Members' Cup and then the, the current day. And I got pretty lucky, really, because for a while I wasn't too sure what I was going to do it on. Um, but I was talking to friends, and he knew someone from the year above me that had done it on FC United. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. So I thought, well, if he's done it on them, I'll see whether I can do anything on Blackburn. And, and luckily, my um, idea was accepted, and then, then I got to do it. So, yeah. Fantastic. And so um, what what the listeners are going to hear, then, is you narrating, effectively, your, your final paper. And as you say, there are there are three chapters, shall we say. So let's talk about each one in turn. So the first one is the Full Members' Cup. So why, why did you choose the Full Members' Cup? And you probably weren't even born, were you, at that point? That, that's a really quite depressing thought. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what what's your perspective of the Full Members' Cup and what made you choose that? I think the Full Members' Cup for me was something that I never fully appreciated, um, especially the magnitude of it. Um, I knew what it was. I knew we'd won something called the Full Members' Cup. 
didn't have a clue what it was though, why it happened, why we didn't have it anymore. I think that's just speaking to you that probably sparked my interest most in that because I think you spoke of it with such um, fondness, like thinking of, of uh, the day that we won it. And I thought, well, I suppose, yeah, because I'd have felt the same in our season in League One had we got any further in the Czech trade. Yeah. That's the way I think I'd, I'd have looked at it. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking from your perspective, I'd love to go out on a day at Wembley like at the start. I suppose like when I spoke to you, you said that you don't really pay much attention, but then you thought, oh, you know, if we win this next summer at Wembley, and I suppose you saying that made me think, yeah, because that's probably how I'd have felt last season. And I suppose listening to your own podcast as well with Don as well, that was, again, just the way that he spoke about it. And I looked at news clips of the day it happened and, and how full Wembley was. And I, I suppose that, yeah, just, you know, talking to, to fans that were there on the day sparked my interest in it. And and you actually got in contact with Don Mackay. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I saw the um, podcast that you did with him and I thought, well, I'll just see and spoke to his son on Twitter. Yeah, he uh, followed me back, thankfully, and I just messaged him just saying, I understand that this is completely out of line because <laughs> I'm just messaging you on Twitter and you've <laughs> never spoken to me before. But, is there a chance that I could speak to you? Because I'd love to about his time at Blackburn and he was more than happy to. And it was really interesting talking to him just because of he has he seems to have such a rich career, not necessarily in terms of major success, but in terms of the experiences he's had. Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah. And especially at Blackburn, where I'd suppose you could say he had the most success. Yeah, so talking to him, it was brilliant just, just to hear you know the stories that he had and... And I suppose the passion that he spoke about when it came to Blackburn, because I suppose from his point of view, and he said as such that it could have been quite easy to hold a grudge when it came to Blackburn, because it's easy to forget that Kane Dalglish was the man that came in after him, and and the rest, as I say, is history. But you know, he still speaks and admits that, like he said, he didn't want to sign people, didn't want to sign for Don McCarthy, they wanted to sign for Kane Dalglish, and the passion that he spoke about though still with the club was was brilliant to hear and just the way that he spoke about that day and the disappointments that he had as well like Crystal Palace yeah that was uh, yeah that still burns a hole in my memory as well <laughs> anyway let's listen then so uh, let's listen to the first chapter now where Tom talks about the full members cup and you'll get some um, quotes from Don McCann as well before the glamour and glitz of Monday football when the Premier League was just playing on Division 1 Don McKay led his Blackburn side out onto the Wembley pitch to square off against Charlton Athletic in the full Members' Cup final on March 29th, 1987. That was supposed to be as good as it got for the small Lancashire club, with the first trip to Wembley since 1960. McKay had been named manager of Blackburn in 1987 after being sacked by Coventry City, when Rose approached the Scots when he was working as reserves team manager at Glasgow Rangers. Speaking of his time at the club, McKay said... There were plenty of good days and some bad days, if I'm honest with you. There was a great sense of pride when speaking of that 1987 final, where Rovers ran out 1-0 winners. It was to be his crowning achievement as Rovers manager as well. An achievement that puts him amongst some of Blackburn's most well-regarded gaffers. Speaking of his full Members' Cup success, he continued. The big one, though, was obviously going to Wembley and winning a trophy. The lads did really well that day. At that time, Rovers' average gates were around 7,000. But on that day, 30,000 Blackburn fans made the trip to watch their unfancied side pull off a cup upset. One fan and BRFCS podcast host, Ian Herbert, had been a Rovers fan since the early 70s. He was there to watch Rovers lift the trophy that day, and he admitted that at first, no one had paid much attention to the full Members' Cup as a competition. The cup itself was a replacement for the lack of European football 
After the High Soul disaster, where 14 Liverpool fans were convicted of manslaughter, which led to a five-year European competition ban for English clubs. Herbert explained, It was a two-bob competition that was all about creating matches for lost TV income because of the European ban. It was basically the checker trade tro- trophy for Division 1 and 2. Not everybody entered it, so the big clubs didn't enter it. Some first division sides did, though. Rovers would meet Chelsea in the quarter-final, beating them 3-0, before matching that score in the semi-final against Ipswich Town. He said, We just hit a rich vein of form, and slowly people started to think, if we win the next one, we're in the semi-final, you know. We were so close to Wembley, and that was exciting. Of the fantastic support and the challenge that awaited them on the Wembley pitch, Mackay said, We were amazed. People forget that Charlton were a reasonably good first division side, and we were in the second division. There was most certainly 30,000 Rovers fans on that day, and it contributed to the win, I think. The winning goal was scored by a relative newcomer to the club, in Corn Hendry. The then 22-year-old had only signed for the club a few weeks prior, his first game being the semi-final clash against Ipswich Town. Speaking of the lead-up to the final, he said, It was a bit of a whirlwind, really. Within a matter of weeks, I signed and ended up at Wembley. The first game I played was against Ipswich in the semi-final. We won that 2-0. I'd only signed the day before that. To keeping a clean sheet in the semi-final as a centre-half and then winning the final and scoring the winning goal, it's just a fair return. It's a kid's dream, really, as a football to score a winning goal in a cup final. It doesn't happen for most footballers, but it did for me. The squad had travelled down to Wembley on the Friday, with the game scheduled to take place on the Sunday. Mackay had hoped that allowing the players to familiarise themselves with the Wembley pitch would be beneficial to the squad. Yet when looking back on his Rovers career, Mackay concedes that the main aim of promotion never quite came to fruition. He explained, The main objective was to gain promotion, it never happened. That was a big disappointment. It wasn't for a lack of trying either. Rovers had various close calls, often flirting with promotion to the then Division 1. An issue that Mackay had, however, that Kane Daglish did not have, was a lack of investment very early on. Mackay said, you go to a club and you know what you're going into. We wanted to come in and try and develop younger players. Colin was bought, but he was a younger player. We did a great job bringing those young players through as well. The only time we actually made money was when we sold Con Hendry to Manchester City. That was the first time we went in the black. Bill Fox, the chairman at the time, was so proud that we actually had money in, in the bank that we could hopefully send it on one or two players. Two players that did sign for Rovers, albeit on a short-term basis, were Steve Archibald and Ozzy Ardiles. Seen as a massive coup at the time, Archibald arrived, on, arrived at the Rovers on loan from European giants Barcelona. Tottenham legend Ardelis arrived on a free transfer from the North London club. Of his two high-profile signings as Rovers manager, Mackay said, the one that started it all off was Steve Archibald. I knew Steve from back in Scotland. I knew he wasn't happy at Barcelona. The one thing I could offer him at Blackburn was regular football and a chance to put himself in the shop window. That's what Steve wanted as well. He wanted first-team football and we could offer him that. It was an injury to left-side midfielder Scott Sellers that led to the arrival of Ardiles, but his Rovers career was cut short. Unfortunately, Ardiles got clattered in his first game for us against Plymouth and ended up being out for two or three games. We'd wanted to build on him to help us get promotion. I mean, we came so close again and again. The closest Rovers would come was in 1989 against Crystal Palace, where they would lose an aggregate lead to see their promotion hopes crushed. Similar to the playoff semi-finals now, the final was played over two legs. The first leg took place at Ewood Park where Rovers ran out 3-1 winners 
and looked set to go to Palace and secure a return to the pinnacle of English football. It wasn't to be, though. A controversial penalty and a hostile Selhurst Park crowd meant that Rovers would miss out. It would frustrate Mackay that his side fell at the final hurdle under such contentious circumstances. He said, We'd done well at Ewood and should have done even better. We could have scored a few more that day. The atmosphere was hostile in the return leg, though, and we suffered because of that. Speaking of Palace's penalty, Mackay continued, To this day, the penalty that Ian Wright got off a foul from Corn Henry wasn't a penalty. It was a free kick. I went to work for Arsenal for a little while and I bumped into Ian Wright a few times. We joked about that because he thought as well that it should have been a free kick to Blackburn Rovers. The following season, Rovers once again failed in the playoffs, losing 4-2 in aggregate to Swindon in the semi-final. The season after wasn't as successful. Rovers would go on to finish 19th, avoiding relegation by just four points. It was around that time that local benefactor Jack Walker began to have increasing influence at the club. Mackay said, Believe it or not, I tried to buy Gary Lineker from Tottenham. We also swapped to Teddy Sheringham, and Jack gave us the money to do that. With great honesty, Mackay conceded that Rovers' issue in attempting to sign these players was his own pedigree management. He explained, The problem was that the money was there, but those players would be more influenced by Kenny Dalglish than they would Don Mackay. It was clear for the fans as well that something was changing, that they would soon have to realign their expectations. Ian Herbert said, There were rumours of Jack Walker being involved. Then the Riverside was developed in 1988, and that was literally the Walker Steel stand. When Jack saw we were close to relegation in 1991, he went and offered his services and formally bought the club. At that, at that point, all bets were off. We automatically changed expectation. Kenny coming to a Division 2 club would be like Pep Guardiola making the same move now. That further highlighted Blackburn's issue under Mackay. They just couldn't attract the players they needed to take the club to another level. Mackay would be sacked in the early in the 1991-1992 season, knowing that the club would go on to big things. He said, The money was there, but the players I went to speak to at the time didn't believe that Blackburn Rovers was the club that they actually were. I had a press conference actually the day I left Blackburn. I said that one day you'll speak of this club in the same way you do Liverpool and Manchester United. They didn't believe me. They thought I was being stupid. Three years later, Blackburn won the league. So we've heard about the full Members' Cup, um, the league championship title, the Premier League championship title, I suppose we should say. That's that's obviously Rovers' biggest achievement, arguably, in their history. And I think we can we can probably say that that was harder to win than, um, than the league titles of the early 20th century and our FA Cup t- successes in the early 19th. How did you decide how to structure this and how did you go about trying to contact some of the key protagonists? This was the most difficult one, I'd say, because... Like if we just talk, go jump ahead for a minute. I was always confident I could get people from the club to talk to me, but with the with the Premier League one, I thought the one the one that you want to talk to, I think is Shearer, because when you think of that '95 squad, to someone that's not a Blackburn fan, the first person they would jump to is Shearer, Shearer or Sutton, and more likely Shearer. So I was desperate to get him, and and I was lucky enough as well through spending time at work experience at the Lancashire Telegraph that. They put me in contact with Corn Hendry, and then yeah, those two really made the basis for the entire feature because it was difficult to structure at first. Because I thought, do I just jump right into '95, or do I speak a little bit? I suppose the prelude to it when you look at the promotion season and the um, two seasons prior where we 
finished pretty strongly in the league. Like getting Shearer and Henry made it made it miles easier. Yeah, distinctly jealous about you managing to establish contact with Big Al, of course. Well, I think that's a terrific feather in your cap, and well done for doing that. And his insights will uh, will undoubtedly um, add some colour to it. So let's listen to Tom now talking about our Premier League title win in 1994-95. In October 1991, a now Jack Walker-owned Blackburn Rovers made a move to hire Liverpool legend Kenny Dalglish as the new manager of the club. His goal was simple ensure that Rovers would gain promotion from Division 2 so that they could be part of the newly formed Premier League. Dalglish was, su- was successful in doing just that. Despite a poor run of form, Rovers recovered to finish just inside the playoffs, where they would first beat third-place Derby 5-4 on aggregate in the semi-final. That's a tough encounter against Leicester at Wembley, where a manual penalty was all the difference as Rovers ran out 1-0 winners to secure a place for the Premier League's maiden season. Full Members Cup goal-scoring hero Colin Hendry made his return to the club in November of 1991 as one of Kane Dalglish's first bits of business, and he played a major part in the promotion-winning side. The former Scottish captain said, I've been there three times now, twice as a player and once as a coach. I've never once regretted it. It wasn't a clear-cut return. I got a phone call the night before saying that they wanted me back and were in talks with the city. For me as well to go back to the club, you could just tell that things were happening. I was feeling a bit stale at City. I was out the team and I was surplus to requirements, really. Jack had a plan to get into Europe within six years, so to then get promotion at Wembley my first season back was great. I feel I came back a better defender than I was when I first left. Hendry also feels he improved even more at Rovers, largely in part to Dalglish's assistant, Ray Harford. I then improved even more back at Blackburn, under Ray Harford. Harford is often lauded by Rovers fans and players as a vital cog in the Rovers machine. And though he didn't replicate that success as a manager, he is still well respected, Hendry continued. The combination between Dalglish and Harford was perfect. Ray was probably as good a coach as anyone in the country. He did go on to be number one. He was always a coach rather than a manager though, and that's meant as no, dis- as no disrespect to him. He was a great coach. Hendry isn't alone on that one as well. Blackburn and Newcastle legend Alan Shearer echoed those sentiments. Shearer was Rovers' marquee signing in the summer after promotion from Division 2, signing for a then-record fee £3.7 million from Southampton. Manchester United were also interested in the Southampton prospect, but the pull of working with Dalglish and Half had proved to be too much for the Newcastle-born striker. The Premier League's all-time top goalscorer said of his decision to join Rovers, it was a lot of things, really, including Ray Harford and Kenny. We had three very successful men in Dalglish, Harford and Walker, all in their own right, and we had a promising team that was trying to win. So add that to the hard work, and then I knew we would have a great chance of achieving something. His first season playing in blue and white wasn't plain sailing, though, suffering an anterior cruciate ligament injury against Leeds United. What was evident, however, was Shearer's prolific nature as the striker would score 16 goals in the 21 games he was to feature in. Shearer said of his injury, I was devastated because it had been going so well. To be honest, any injury would have been difficult to take, but a serious knee injury was really difficult. Knowing that I was going to be out for six or seven months was really hard to take. In that season, Rovers would go on to finish in fourth place, which remains a record best for a newly promoted side in the Premier League. The following season, Rovers would challenge United for the crown of Premier League champions, but fell short, finishing in second place. They weren't to be thwarted again. 
Roe was again broke the British transfer record in 1994, signing Chris Sutton from Norwich for £5 million. Along with Shearer, he would go on to form one, one half of one of the Premier League's most lethal duos, the SAS. Sutton wasn't alone in creating lethal partnerships with former England captain. Shearer also had a fruitful partnership with playoff final goal scorer Mike Newell. Of his strike partners at Rovers, Shearer said, The best partnerships I felt were the ones I didn't have to work hard at. With both Mike Newell and Chris Sutton, that was the case. We just had a great understanding of each other's game. And we also played in a very attacking system that suited our games. Rovers played a very direct style of football, implementing a 4-4-2 system that centred around feeding the front two. If Shearer didn't score, then Sutton would, and vice versa. Key to that success was the quality of Rovers wingers Stuart Ripley and Jason Wilcox. Ripley had signed for Middlesbrough in 1992, while Wilcox was a product of Rovers Academy. As the end of the season approached, Rovers' form fell off. However, a win against Newcastle in the penultimate game of the season meant that Rovers' fate remained in their own hands as they headed to Canada Gleish's old stomping ground, Anfield. Manchester United had to travel to Upton Park, knowing that if they were to win and Rovers were to draw or lose, they would complete a hat-trick of Premier League titles. Shearer handed Rovers an early lead, but goals from John Barnes and a last-minute free kick from Jimmy Redknapp meant that Shearer's side were relying on West Ham. United had bombarded West Ham's goal, but an inspired goalkeeping performance meant that the title would be heading to Ewood Park. For Shearer, though, the final day was the culmination of a season's hard work and was thoroughly deserved. It was a crazy day that ended in victory. It was all very nerve-wracking. We won it over the season, not just on that last day. That being said, I still love West Ham for helping us out. Hendry describes it in a similar light, knowing that whilst the title was in Rovers' hands, they faced an incredibly tough test against the Liverpool side. He said, I think prior to the games kicking off, United at West Ham and us Liverpool, you'd say the advantage was probably with United. For Liverpool, they had a day where they just couldn't lose. Everybody in Anfield wanted Blackburn to win the league. The Rovers players were fully aware of what was going on at Upton Park, knowing a winning goal would secure the title. Henry said, Chris Sutton had a chance early in the second half to make it too. Then they equalised and we got caught with a free kick. As a player on that pitch, you don't have a clue what's going on. We got messages from the dugout that it was nil-nil, but the United were missing chance after chance. It was a matter of seconds after Rovers had gone behind that the news began to filter through that it was full-time at Upton Park. He continued. So we got towards the end of the game. The game was still going on, and it's just after Liverpool had scored. We look over and Ray's just all over Kenny, and Kenny's jumping up and down. We saw that and thought, that's it. We've either won the league or West Ham have scored. Either way, we've probably won the league. The game's still going on, but it's just bypassing us. It really was flying past us. At that minute in time, it didn't matter though. Didn't matter what the score was at Anfield. We'd won it. One of the major criticisms of that Rovers side is the suggestion that Rovers bought the league. Interestingly enough though, when the cost of Rovers starting 11 is compared to that of United's, it costs 5 million less. Similarly, the likes of Leeds spent more money on Carlton Palmer than what Rovers did in the cross the entire midfield four. Of those accusations, Henry said, I'll always have an argument over buying the league. Blackburn Rovers didn't buy the league. We bought Shearer for 3.5 million, sold him for 15. We bought Chris Sutton for 5 million, sold him for 10. 
In real terms, I cost the club £25,000 because they bought me back for what I was sold for. Then I went on to Rangers for £3 million. They made profit on everyone. You can't say that's the same as it is now. The following season wouldn't be as successful for Rovers, who were knocked out of the Champions League in the group stage and struggled to sixth place. The summer had initially showed much promise as well. Zidane was linked with a move to Ewood Park, where Jack Walker was reported as saying, who needs Zidane when you've got Tim Sherwood? Before the season would start, however, Dalglish would take up a director of football role and Harford just didn't have the same impact he'd had as a coach. On his team here that never was, Henry said, Zidane was at the training ground. We'd seen him and thought, is this the next level? We had a lot of finance. The prize money was great. There was a Champions League as well. But then there was a falling out, a disagreement between Kenny and Ray and Kenny and Jack. Kenny moved upstairs, Ray took over, and we just didn't have the same impetus. People say, well, the team didn't change, but there was a big change because Kenny moved upstairs. He selected the eleven. Ray would find out when we did. They would discuss things, but to the best of my knowledge, the team selection was just Kenny. Robles would fail to hit those dizzy heights again and would be relegated just four years after winning the Premier League. For the fans and players, though, they created memories that will last a lifetime. And in Jack Walker, they have an icon who has cemented his legacy as Blackburn's greatest ever supporter. So those were the good times. And then along came Venkis. How did you consider how to treat Venkis and their reign? I think the important thing with the Venkis piece was to not allow any personal bias to creep in because I think doing a journalism course is important that you give every, you make everything as fair as possible. So it'd be easy for me to write a article on everything bad that Venkis have done and speak of... of how the club has fallen so far in the the short time they've been well, basically owners of the club. But I wanted to make sure that I at least give them a chance, a fighting chance to show that perhaps they aren't all bad, even though sometimes it might seem like that. I feel like I did a decent job at that. I spoke to Duncan Miller and he was brilliant to talk to. He's very well well versed in the the going-ons and and what things mean, which was a big help because it's something that I don't think I've ever fully understood. I know we're in debt, I know they put money into the club as well, but I don't fully understand the debt, I'm, I'm definitely not a numbers man. So speaking to someone like Duncan was brilliant, and as well, getting access to the club, but the access they gave me was brilliant. Who did you get to speak to then, Tom? Um, so I went through uh, Warren Lucy, who got me to speak to, so I was able to speak to Tony Mowbray and David Raya. I needed a player that had been there at the club, basically prior to Mowbray. Yeah. So Raya was one, and Raya, Raya was brilliant as well, obviously he'd been there as well, and Mowbray, I suppose, is the person that has given him his uh, starting berth. Yeah, it was it was really great to talk to them. I was a bit disappointed, I must admit, because there were a couple of questions that I'd have liked to have asked. And uh, given the way that it, the, the interviews panned out, it was basically in a, a pre-match press conference. Right. So it was a bit so difficult. Time yeah, you were time restricted. Yeah, basically. And so there was a couple of things that I'd like to have asked um, that were probably a bit more personal towards the Venkies, knowing that there was a chance I'd just get shut down anyway. But I think the articles came out good anyway with, with them because I think a lot of it made sense. And, yeah. and that was largely in part to Alan Myers. He was brilliant as well, talking to him just. Similar to Don, it'd be easy for someone like Alan to be very bitter yeah. about about what went on because there was clearly stuff that happened that he wasn't happy with. And he was brilliant as well, which 
was a big help to me as well in, in making sure that I wasn't biased against the Venkis because he was saying, you know, they are good people. So yeah, all in all, the the, the final one was a was a real a real success with with who I was get able to speak to. Well, let's uh, let's let the listeners have the benefit of your your input then. So this is Tom talking about the Venkis reign. In November 2010, Blackburn were purchased by Indian poultry company the VH Group, better known as Venkis, for £23 million. At that time, under the guidance of Sam Allardyce, Rovers were a comfortable, mid-table Premier League club. Within a month of purchasing the club from the Walker Trust, Venkis had sacked Allardyce and replaced him with the relatively unknown Steve Keane. With that began a period of turmoil for the proud Lancashire club, as they were relegated from the Premier League in 2012. Five years later, after going through six managers in those five years, Rovers fell to the third tier of English football for the first time since 1980. This was despite a revival after hiring Tony Mowbray in February 2017. And so began a revival, a squad overhaul and a newfound belief, as Rovers were promoted from League One at the first time of asking. Relegation is arguably one of the best things to happen to the club, but how do fans view the Venkis now? Do they forgive them for past failures? And can Rovers ever return to their former glory? Alan Myers worked with the Venkis as the Director of Communications from 2013 to 2016. He resigned from his position along with then Rovers manager Paul Lambert at the end of the 2015-2016 season. On his time at the club, Myers said, There were a number of issues that needed dealing with. A big one for me as Director of Communications was getting back to the club, not just on a match day, but getting them back together with the club. What was prevalent to me was the split between fans. A split in the fan base is never good. A split in the fan base had risen from the failures of the Venkis and differing viewpoints on the best course of action. He continued, They were the immediate task though. My two and a half years was on the whole a great experience. People always worked very hard and it really is a great club. Meyer's time at the club coincided with a little success as Rovers flirted with the playoffs. At that time, though, Rovers had become increasingly disillusioned with what was going on. Myers had tasked himself with building a bridge between the fans and the club. To do this, he introduced fan forums that continue to this day, as well as meeting with different supporter groups. He continued, The bottom line is that the problems were there. We couldn't change the past. I think what had happened was that everyone had developed a sense of not communicating, whether that's fans, staff or directors. People wanted to walk away from their responsibility, and that was my biggest challenge when I went in. From the owner's point of view, it's difficult for them to communicate being in India. People before me just didn't communicate. The fan base grew ever distant and hostile, and felt that they couldn't work with the club. Myers left the club in 2016, citing differing opinions on what he felt the direction of the club should be. Despite this, he harbours no ill feeling towards the poultry giant, recognising the positive relationship he had with them. He continued, I had a great relationship with them, and I still do. Ultimately, they are responsible, but what they are is humble people. They allowed me to get on with my job and didn't interfere. The issue is that some of the people they left it to let them down massively. When I met them, all they wanted was success. They desired it, and they let us do what we wanted to do to try and achieve that. I think that's how the club got into trouble. They give the money to the wrong people. On his decision to leave, he continued, the club was going through a tough time. 
and I didn't feel like, like I could give everything I needed to give to help make the club successful. I had a great conversation with the owners about it. I didn't want to see what did happen, happen. I didn't want to be part of the relegation. It was sad and I do miss it. I miss the people and the club. I would have loved to work with Tony Mowbray. How the club is being run now is how I'd have liked it to be run. With the appointment of Mowbray, a new chief executive in Steve Waggett, the club has undergone another period of rebuilding in recent years, one that some feel is going to set the club up to go on and succeed. Despite that, there are understandable apprehensions from fans who still have problems with the Venkies. One such fan is Duncan Miller, who ran as an independent candidate for Blackburn in the 2017 general election. At that time, the club was reeling from the championship and frustration with the owners was at an all-time high. On his campaign, Miller said, The protest died down when Keane left, but then picked up when we were hurtling towards League One. I was involved with meetings at Ewood Working Men's Club, just discussing protest strategies. I threw one out there saying, wouldn't it be a good idea if we made a Venkis out party? I was half joking really, but it sort of spiralled from there. With minimum outlay, we could get quite a lot of coverage. One of the initial problems Miller first faced was any potential backlash from fans. He continued, It was difficult to gauge the reaction to it all, really. I was pleasantly surprised though at the support. I thought I would get a lot more abuse from the fans that I did at the time. With us, it seems to be one extreme or the other. At that time, though, I just think everyone everyone had had enough. As Rovers' fortunes have changed, however, so have fan opinions. Whilst Rovers are on an upward trajectory, supporters are more accepting of the Venkies. In a survey carried out with 585 Rovers supporters, 63% of them stated they were, indif- they were indifferent to the Venkies, whilst 9% claimed they liked them, and the remaining 28% disliking them. Interestingly, despite 28% voicing their dislike for the Indian poultry giants, 93% of the 585 were happy with the way the club is currently being run. Miller offered an explanation to the survey's findings, saying, I certainly won't ever forgive them for the state they put us in. Speaking generally though, people are happier that we actually have a functioning football club, because that hasn't always been the case. I don't think that's because of Venkis though. I think it's because of their inaction rather than their action. One of Rover's hardest tasks at the moment is encouraging fans to get back into the habit of watching every home game. Prior to the Venkis arrival, Rover's had averaged crowds for around 25,000 in the Premier League. In the League One promotion winning season, Rover's attendances averaged out to just over 12,000. That has increased this season to 14,500, but is a far cry from the attendances not even a decade ago. Alan Myers recognises the importance of the fan base and acknowledges, for a smaller club like Rovers, it is important that they don't alienate those that do attend matches week in, week out. He said, Blackburn is a very specific fan base. It's a town club, it's not a city where there are two big teams. It's a fan base with a real core. It had fans that went no matter what. These people really care. I'm asked sometimes that in my line of work, how do you deal with all the mourning? My answer is always the same. I don't see it as mourning. It's passion. They're passionate. In terms of on the field, Rovers finished the season in 15th place upon their return to the Championship, 
and have left themselves with a good platform as they look to make a return to the Premier League next season. The fans expect them to be battling as well, 72% of them to be precise. The players also hold that expectation of themselves, none more so than keeper David Rea. Born in Barcelona, the 23-year-old arrived in Blackburn when he was just 16 years old. He established himself as the main shot stopper during Rovers' League One campaign and continued that on the, in the return to the Championship. Rea said, I think the club is in a better position than it was two or three years ago. Coming back from relegation and establishing ourselves in the Championship again, I think he's been the key to the team and the club progressing. He almost kept us up when we were relegated, yet in a weird way I think that was the best thing that could happen to us. On the importance of the fans, he continued, The fans were brilliant last year. I think it's important for us and the fans to be together. It's important that we get the fans through the door, both home and away. A big crowd at home especially really helps us. It gives us that extra drive that can help us pick up the points. What is important at Mowbray, however, is recruitment and making sure that his team consistently improves. The rower's manager said, Since I've come in, we've generally signed younger players. We've relied on senior players that have perhaps gone through a relegation that I felt could compete. The recruitment has to impact the team now, though. We can't concede 69 goals like this season. You don't go up with those numbers. One thing Mowbray urges, however, is that fans stick with the club. Acknowledging that as a team they can build expectations, but that everyone must pull in the same direction. He continued, We built an expectation and then fell off, so they can be disappointed. I'll say that this season, though, most of the players played in League One with us, so to compete with the likes of Aston Villa, it will take that little bit longer. And that's what I would say to fans we keep going. That's the only way to do it, really, to stick together as one club. So there we go then, Tom. That's your that's your dissertation, and you're now making your way in the in the big wide world. I, I presume you're going to carry on doing your your podcasting, your writing stuff in in your spare time if you have any after marking all the homework. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that writing something I enjoy, especially about about robbers and, and podcasting again, is something that I really enjoy doing. So I'm definitely going to keep up with that and just carry on. I'm sure that that I'll be I'll be on here again. Of course, I'll be on 1875 podcast. Most weeks when the season starts. Splendid. Well, we, we look forward to hearing you. I think it's always good to have um, other voices and other perspectives. Certainly, uh, from my, I guess from my experience, it's always good to hear that a new younger generation coming through and hear what resonates with you guys, um, as opposed to my gnarled old middle aged views. It's good to get some <laughs> youthful enthusiasm every now and then. So uh, yeah, you're you're saved in my uh, in my podcast application as well. So Tom, thanks very much for giving up your time, and thanks very much, obviously, for recording your your paper. It was enjoyable helping you put it together in some small way. From my perspective, it was great to read, and hopefully now the listeners have enjoyed listening to it as well. Enjoy the rest of your summer. All the best with that, and I dare say we'll speak during the season. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. By the way, massive thank you to Joe Bamford, a BRFCS forum member and his band The Symmetry for providing all the incidental music used in this episode. I hope you'll look them up on Facebook and if they're playing live near to you, well, go and see them. This ain't no right.